Testing, testing, check, check. Is anybody out there? Welcome to Trinity Radio. I am so, so glad that you are all here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be looking at not what you might expect out of a channel like this. I mean, I've done response videos to things that have happened on unbelievable Christian radio with Justin Brierley before, but this one's a little bit different. And so I, I think it's going to allow us to talk about some things that we typically don't talk about. And um, even if we don't get as big of a crowd as we typically get, I think it's important. Um, so thank you all for coming here. I appreciate so many of you that show up every time. Jim Amberg, Eddie Vasquez, uh, Jose Martinez, Aaron, Justin Brown, all of you guys, your regular Isaiah Braxton, I'm sorry, Tatiana, Zom, the programmer, Drew Beatty, Drew Beatty. Uh, thank you all for being here and others who have not yet mentioned yourselves or revealed yourselves in the chat. So this is a little bit different. Is it apologetics? Well, you decide. And the reason is because what we're talking about here is stories. Um, the story of atheism and the story of Christianity. Now, before I go any further, I already know I'm going to get comments from atheists who are going to say, that's not what atheism is. Atheism isn't a story. Atheism is a mere lack of belief. And so this guy doesn't even understand what atheism is. Well, it's appropriate that Drew Beatty is in the chat here today because he has plenty of thoughts on that that he shared in my debate with Matt Dillahunty, where I sort of gave him some pushback in defense of Matt Dillahunty. But um, nevertheless, I'm not interested in getting into that, except to say we should use the terminology, right? This is the whole point. We should use the terminology that's most appropriate 
to the particular atheist in view. And in this discussion, the particular atheist in view, the author of The Golden Compass and His Dark Materials, says that he should properly define himself as an agnostic because an atheist is someone who would have to have all knowledge to know that there is no God. But he says he uses the title atheist because it uh, it just it's just better than um, it's just better than anything else because it describes that functionally he lives his life as though atheism is true. So if you don't like it, then you'd kind of be if you don't like that I'm using atheism that way in this video, then you're going against your well, you I don't know about you as an individual, but the general um, push that I get from atheists that hey. Uh, use the terminology that the particular atheist you're talking to prefers, and we prefer the lack of belief. Okay, great. This one doesn't prefer that, so I'm going to use the terminology that he allows for. All right. Um, so as we uh, so as we as we jump into this, uh, they're talking about stories, as I say, and what we have here. I've never heard of this Christian, this particular Christian, uh, before, and uh, but but we'll we'll talk about him in just a few moments. But um, Philip Pullman is the author of His Dark Materials. Perhaps you remember there was a major film with Nicole Kidman several years ago. Um, and who is the male actor? Daniel Craig or something like that. Um, that was uh, in theaters, big big movie, The Golden Compass. I had actually read The Golden Compass book prior to that. I think people should read uh, fiction uh, as well as a lot of nonfiction stuff. And uh, I think it helps with you know, your imagination and, and things like that. And in fact, there's some good stuff in this episode of Unbelievable that I'm not covering here about that, that I think is really helpful that both men agree about. Um, but, uh, but, but I read The Golden Compass, found it to be a, a fairly decent work of fiction that was kind of Narnia-esque, but for atheists or secularists, but it's still an enjoyable book. Um, the movie I didn't think was that great, although oddly, I do think it captured what the book felt like. But now there's an HBO series on his dark materials. Uh, it begins with the Golden Compass stuff. So that should that should be um, uh, that should be an interesting one. So um, so uh, maybe maybe you can follow that. I don't know. But it, it does have this underlying atheist narrative to it. But I think the stories are important. And the, the topic of this episode of Unbelievable was uh, does it make em does Christianity make emotional sense? Now, obviously, in this space of online worldview discussions between Christians and atheists, both sides want to say, man, it's all about the evidence. It's all about the evidence. Um, but I think actually what the Christian should be saying is the evidence. We have a strong evidence that makes it likely to that makes Christianity likely to be true and at the very least reasonable to be believed. But it is also emotionally satisfying, and I think that that is an important piece that we sometimes try to distance ourselves from because we don't want to feel or seem as though that's what's driving us. I think we're afraid that that plays into the atheist's hand, but it doesn't play into the atheist's hand. They're already saying that stuff anyway. We might as well say, yeah, guess what? Emotion is a real thing, and... Um, and uh, Christianity answers our emotional longings. Thank you so much, Mr. Monotone, for that uh, super chat. I so, so appreciate that. And I'm not sure I've seen you here before, so I so appreciate that you're here and commenting. Thank you so, so much. Um, 
uh, Jose Martinez, let's just go ahead and jump for this. He says, I think when we Christian apologists talk about the atheist worldview, quote unquote, we, we really mean the naturalistic, materialistic worldview where all that would exist would be the natural and the material. I think you make a really good point. One thing I will point out is that earlier, maybe last year on this channel, I did uh, a video on um, atheism as a worldview in which I brought in several different atheist comments, um, from around YouTube. And one of them was from godless cranium who kind of says, well, yeah, I, I think maybe there is something to this idea of an atheist worldview. And I made the case by going to the Pew research data and atheists in general have a number of things that they seem to, to all fall into, um, more than Christians. So it's something like, um, 80 something percent of them, uh, would say that uh, pro-choice is the position that you should hold. And um, a huge number um, say that um, homosexuality is, is um, that there's nothing immoral or sinful about homosexual behavior. And uh, evolution is overwhelmingly likely true. So there are all these things that whether you intend for there to be an atheist worldview or not, when atheism is a part of a worldview, there's a lot of things that follow along with that, such that I think it's meaningful to talk about an atheist worldview. But I do think... Uh, Jose Martinez uh, is right to say, really, it's naturalism or materialism. And he says, I think most atheists know what we mean. Right. So um, exactly. All right. Good. So uh, but when you're looking at the story that unfolds, if atheistic naturalism is true versus the story of Christianity, which one which one answers the deepest questions of life in a meaningful way and the best way? So before we jump right into the video, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at something that some of you may have heard me talk about recently, and I recently talked about it on our other channel, Trinity Radio Extra. By the way, I would love for you to go check out Trinity Radio Extra. There's the logo on the screen, and you can find that just by going to YouTube and searching Trinity Radio Extra. It's mostly theology-related stuff. But um, anyway, uh, I recently talked about this there. I'm going to unfold it briefly here. So there is this approach that if you read someone like Douglas Grothaus or uh, Donald J. Johnson or some of these people that are interested in worldview analysis, and, and if you like C.S. Lewis, there's, there's, I think Lewis kind of falls into this cumulative case sort of an approach where we're taking two worldviews. So here, atheistic naturalism and Christianity. Now, obviously, there are multiple Christian worldviews. And um, there are multiple naturalistic worldviews because your worldview encompasses everything that you believe. But um, a Christian worldview and an atheist worldview, which one answers the questions that uh, of life, the big questions of life in the most meaningful way? And so those questions might be something like, um, I, I like these three. How did we get here? Like human beings, how did we get here? What's the meaning of life if there is a meaning of life? And what, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out with the, I'm, I'm hitting you too hard, aren't I? I'm going to turn down the volume just a bit, but what's the meaning of life? What happens when we die? And, um, uh, and, uh, sorry, how do we get here? What's the meaning of life and what happens when we die? So those are some, uh, those are some things that, that, that a worldview ought to be able to answer. And most worldviews are able to answer those questions. Aaron Jones, Aaron Jones says Braxton's impression of James from modern day debates the other week was well, dope. Thank you so, so much. I meant to throw up the picture or the image where you said that you just subscribed or somebody just subscribed. Here we go. Josh Joseph Shipley just subscribed to Trinity Radio Extra. Thank you so much. Um, so all worldviews can answer those questions. How do we get here? What's the meaning of life if there is one? And what happens when we die? The question is, do they answer them well? Which one has the best answer? And so we're doing abductive reasoning to try and find 
the best explanation for this. So what you want to do is you want to take both worldviews and you want to say, okay, what are some things that we all agree about um, that, that the atheist and the Christian both agree about, but, but that Christianity can't answer, does not have an account for. And I've yet to find anything that we agree is a fact about the way the world is that Christianity can't account for. And then we look at the other worldview, whether it's atheism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever it is, and we say, what are some things that Christianity can account for that your worldview doesn't account for well or doesn't account for at all? And so that's what we, that's what we do. And, uh, and we find out who has the best worldview that way. Um, so that's a, an interesting way to go about it. So they don't line that up in this discussion that we're going to look at today. But that very, is, that very much is what happens when we're looking at the Christian story. What does Christianity account for? And specifically in this video, emotionally, what does it account for emotionally that um, an atheistic worldview does not account for emotionally? And you'll see some interesting things, I think, emerge as we look at, uh, as we look at this together. So keep those things in mind. That's very, very important. Remember, all worldviews have answers to the most pressing questions of life. The question is, which worldview has the best or most likely to be true answers? Um, so when we're looking at that, we want one that explains the largest number of facts that we that we know are true um, and, and explains them in a way that isn't forced. All right. So um, for those that are interested in historiography, some of the same things that are used by historians there, the explanatory scope, explanatory power, plausibility, less ad hoc, those things all can be applied here in worldview analysis as well. And of course, you want to pay attention to logical fallacies where they show up. By the way, if you want more on all of this, I recommend two books. Um, and one of those is How to Talk to a Skeptic by Donald J. Johnson and uh, Christian Apologetics by Douglas Grutthaus, because uh, both of those will, will teach you worldview analysis. And it's not something that you get from most apologetics works. So I encourage you to check those things out. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into the first of these things. And let's begin to talk a little bit about this as we look at the video between these two guys um, as they talk about um, uh, stories and how they impact. But the first statement isn't exactly about that. It's more about how the Christian came back to the church, to Christianity, and, uh, and what was keeping him away. And to be honest, I also found um, I think I think I I had God quite easily mixed up with various forms of authority. I found difficult, so it took me a long time to persuade myself that churches were were genuinely empty. And it was only once I was really sure they were empty that I was I was in a position to start <laughs> thinking that they might so, be full. So 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 it, it took a bit of time to kind of get over the whole authority issue mm, yes and once you were sure that the church has really wielded no authority anymore you were happy to step back inside as it were. yeah so we're going to get to that but first i want to throw up a statement from or a question from susan morales she says um and by the way susan i'm going to be posting a video of a discussion you and i had on trinity radio extra very soon so y'all will want to check that at y'all Occasionally, my Tennessee comes out. Y'all will want to check that out. Susan Morales says, can an atheist believe in God or is that against the rules? Dumb question, but has anyone come across an atheist that does somewhat believe in God? Uh, it's not a dumb question. It might sound like one on the surface, but believe it or not, if you look at some of those same Pew Research studies, what you're going to find is there are a number of people that identify as atheists who believe in God, a personal God. Um, that's weird, right? Uh, atheism shouldn't allow for that. Uh, you may have things like Buddhism, which, you know, it, it's considered um, atheistic, but has an idea of, uh, you know, something ultimate, but not 
um, a personal God in that way. So this is uh, not a bad question. What you'd want to say is, what do you mean when you refer to yourself as an atheist if you believe in God? What do you understand the word atheist to mean? But again, I will say, when we're talking about what does atheism mean or anything like that, what we want to do is figure out what the person believes and how they're using the word instead of just arguing all the time about the use of the word. That's why I think it is good when you're beginning a worldview discussion to say, um, how do you answer the big questions of life? Because the three I gave you will get you in the ballpark of what their worldview is. How did we get here? What's the meaning of life? What happens when we die? So that's some practical stuff you can take away from this. Okay. Um, now let's, uh, let's, let's uh, this. So this first statement, this Christian who had not been a Christian became a Christian. He said, the thing that kept me away, one of the things anyway, was authority. This idea that the church had all this authority or, or what sense of authority did the church have? He says something confusing next. I didn't include it in the clip about God and whether God is an authority with a capital A. And we're going to talk about that. The thing is, um, this Philip uh, Pullman, who wrote the His Dark Materials, you can tell in, in just the first few chapters of The Golden Compass, you can see it so clearly that he has a real problem with the church, uh, perhaps specifically the Catholic church, but the church, the magisterium. If you've read the book, you'll know. And this authoritative uh, force is, is a big problem uh, for him. Uh, this could actually be an interesting discussion because I know we have Catholics in the chat right now. And uh, Catholics and Protestants view church authority in different ways. So just know that I'm approaching this um, in a way that is decidedly not Catholic. Uh, I don't mean that as any offense <laughs> to my Catholic brothers that are here, uh, but, but they would have their own comments and statements about this. But here's the thing. So the church having authority is a big problem for Philip Pullman, and it seems that it was a problem for I forget his name, but for the uh, for the uh, for Francis here, the Christian. And so an interesting thing that we see here is this authority, this idea of authority was a problem. Now, I think this idea of authority in the church is a problem for a lot of people, um, whether you're talking about Catholicism or anything else. And one of the reasons is because, number one, in the modern Western world, we are very concerned about my freedoms, right? We want to make sure we have our freedom. Uh, not talking about libertarian freedom here, which all of you have, whether you believe you do or not, but freedom um, as an individual, right? Autonomy. We, we want to make sure we have that. That is a very obvious thing in the modern Western world. And so we don't want to put ourselves under authority for that reason. Number two, um, we, we may balk at authority because of the fact that authoritarian figures have acted wrongly in the past, right? We understand that they're mere humans and humans make mistakes and humans can be corrupt and ultimate power ultimately corrupts and all those kind of things uh, uh, can be true. And so for that reason, this becomes a very difficult issue. Now, here's the thing. What is the case? And here's again where I think some of my Catholic brothers and sisters are going to disagree with me here. But what is the case about authority in the church? Uh, there are churches that have this lick my boot leadership style where it's an, there is abuse of authority. The person, uh, people can use their power to, um, to manipulate people. And that can be a very wrong, a very bad thing. Is that really the type of leadership structure that the Bible, the New Testament gives us? I'm not convinced that it is. Well, obviously not that, but is the type of authority that we mean when we think about authority, 
uh, of a high level authority, someone who can decide things for us in our lives. Um, is that what the Bible has for us with the New Testament church? I'm not convinced that it is, and I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, I don't see it very obviously in any place in the New Testament. In fact, I'll give you a biblical case. So we take the Apostle Paul, none less than the Apostle Paul. And he talks in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, well, in 1 Corinthians in general, he's talking about problems with people claiming certain authorities within the local church, right? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And then you got the uber spiritual people, I'm of Christ, right? Uh, but if, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, what's interesting is, now don't miss this, because this is very interesting, I think. Paul says something in passing about Apollos. Now, if you don't know who Apollos is, Apollos is a minister of the gospel who comes up uh, during the uh, laying out of the New Testament. And in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, notice this. Think about this. Here we have Paul telling them about, a, about an interaction he had with Apollos, where Paul told Apollos, I think you should go to the Corinthian church. And, uh, and Apollos basically said, yeah, not so much. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not digging it. I'm not going there now. So Paul says, I, I, okay, he, he didn't want to come at all, but I'm sure he'll come when he has the opportunity. Now notice here. This is pretty interesting because we would expect none less than the Apostle Paul to say something to Apollos like, uh, no, sir, I told you to go to the Corinthian church. You're going to go to the Corinthian church like it or not. But that's not what we see. What we see is you don't have that lick my boot leadership strategy. Instead, what you have is um, you, you have Paul allowing Apollos to make his decision about something like that. So I think that what we have in the church today is a willingness. So you willfully and voluntarily put yourself under the authority of God. Ultimately, when uh, an elder or someone in the church, a pastor, an elder, someone in the church who has on paper, maybe what seems like um, what seems like a, a level of authority, what you see there is uh, someone who who is telling you perhaps someone who has more knowledge about scripture than you have about the nature of God, about the things of God, perhaps more experienced living the Christian life. And they're presenting you with things that are true about God. And so if you rebel against what God wants you to do, you're not, it's not that you're rebelling against that elder or that pastor or teacher or apostle or whatever you're rebelling against God. It may feel and seem like you're rebelling against that elder and thus you're violating some important authority situation, but you're rebelling against the God that, is, that this elder is telling you about or the, the message that he's telling you about. So I think that's a very important thing. So, for instance, um, you might say, yeah, but then what does that do to the question of church discipline? Now, uh, some of you might not know what church discipline is. Church discipline is not... Uh, this situation where one, um, where the church gets you up on stage and, and like gives you 30 lashes or something like that. That's not, that's not what's going on. Church discipline is, and, and, there, and it, it is fallen out of practice in the modern church, partly because of this desire for individualism and not to be under any authority, but is when someone in a local church willfully puts themselves under the authority of the church by, by uh, when they get called out on sin or suspected of some particular sin that is ongoing and problematic, 
then what the, what the individual may do is when they're approached by the elders of the church, they, they, they can say, okay, I, they can, they can, um, they can be put out of the church if they don't listen. Right. But you see this voluntary thing going on, but they voluntarily submit to this. And as a result, what happens is then the elders can examine the situation and declare that to the church body or, or, or deal with it in some way. Um, I'm going to give you an example of that, but real quick, uh, T last says, um, we got T jump. We got T last T last says, how about Ananias and Sapphira thoughts? Yes, I have thoughts because here's the thing. We are under an ultimate authority that can and should decide for us. And we can be in rebellion to that authority too. And that is that authority. That ultimate authority is God. And you'll notice here what happened was they had lied, quote unquote, lied to the spirit, uh, about a matter um, and as a result of not repenting and continuing to lie about that to, to Peter and to others, God took their lives. Now, um, interesting story that I'm glad you bring it up. Notice the church didn't take their lives. God took their life. Interesting thing about it is here we actually have a situation where you might say, but that sounds terrible. How is it that, 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 that a loving God would do something like that? Now, first of all, when you hear atheists point out that the God in the Old Testament seems so much angrier and harsher than God in the New Testament. And we want to say, no, it's one God in the Old and New Testament. There are places in the New Testament where you see some stuff that looks like some kind of Old Testament type stuff, you know, some straightforward uh, judicial action, right? And likewise, in the Old Testament, you see the love and joy and, and, and all that of God for his people. But um, in, why does this seem so bad? From all we know from the story, Ananias and Sapphira were professing believers in the one true God. They were Christians. Now, I've heard people make the case that they weren't truly born-again Christians, but it seems from the story that, that the only thing we have warrant to conclude is that they were. And so God took them on home to heaven rather than to leave them on earth, um, causing problems in the economy of the young church and, and, um, and perhaps serving as bad um, role models for other people. So uh, I think that's a really important point. If you have kids, and this only seems so bad, let me, let me preface it with this. This only seems so bad if you think death is the end. If you have kids who are acting up at school, say um, eight-year-olds acting up at school, uh, the, the school might uh, you know give some punishment, some, what do you call them now, a pink slip or a demerit or something like that. Um, they might get a stern talking to, but eventually if it goes on, at some point they're going to call you and say, come get your kid and take them home. They, they might suspend them. They might expel them. Now, uh, you understand that's a necessary part of our educational system because there have to be ways of controlling the classroom and making sure things go as they should. So if God were to uh, take one of his kids home, that sounds so bad to you because you have, because of culture and everything else, this impression that death is the worst imaginable thing and perhaps death is the end. But for a Christian, death is not the end. They're going to go on home to heaven. God may take his kids home, just like you might take your kids home from school. Now, if you think that sounds horrible or something, it's because you're not looking within this. You're, you're doing an external analysis instead of an internal analysis of what's actually going on. And you probably don't believe this thing with Ananias and Sapphira happened anyway. So settle down with that. But if you believe the story and you believe the Christian stuff I'm talking about is true, then God has every right to take his kids home if they're acting up. So anyway, I think all of that is important to say. So this authoritarian sort of a situation, here's an example of, of where someone willfully puts themselves under the authority of the church. 
So, uh, and I'll go ahead and take that off about Ananias and Sapphira. So uh, a couple of years ago, there was an allegation made against our family. And so uh, my local pastor, who I have a good relationship with, as you should with your pastor, he contacted me about it. Um, I willfully said, hey, we're going to submit. We want to sit down and talk to you about this and let you examine us because it's not true. And he sat down with us. He examined it. He said it's, he, he, he did whatever other looking around and asking about, and he found it wasn't true and everything's fine now. And we went on, but I was willing to put myself under the church discipline examination of my pastor. Now, what, what could I have done? I could have said, yeah, no, thanks. And gone to the church down the street. And that's where there's a little bit of a difference between the Protestants and the Catholics, because I'm not convinced it's so easy for a Catholic just to say, no, thank you. I'm going to go to another Catholic church. Now they could leave and go to a Protestant church. So really the same problem can emerge. But the fact is, this is, um, uh, there is a way to do this. But the lick my boot type leadership strategy, yeah, I don't see it and I don't buy it. Um, so he became a Christian. So now uh, let's move on to the next clip. And we're going to get now more into the emotional reasons uh, that are coming into this video specifically. It seemed to me that most of the argument going on between um belief and atheism was remarkably self-defeating because people were basically talking past each other and that to some extent they had bought the new atheist contention that religion was primarily to do with with science and with its compatibility or incompatibility with science whereas in fact the reasons for belief when i came back to them had much more to do with emotions not that emotions and reason are at war with each other, but there are different domains of human mm. experience there. And I thought there should be a book about religion which was in the domain of feeling, since most of the Christians I knew were Christians for reasons to do with you know, their history as human beings, the history of their hearts, in mm. fact, not the history of their of their attitude to, to, to DNA or... Um, or the fossil record or any of that stuff. So I waited for somebody else to do it and then they didn't. So I thought, oh, <laughs> all right then. Yeah, okay, before we jump back in here, I love this. Uh, I always forget. Chase Clement, I think, says, um, quick devil's advocate. If I take my kids home from school, it's not going to be fun when they get there. Is this the case when God kills someone and brings them, quote unquote, home to heaven? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I mean, this the timing of when that, uh, unpleasant moment will come is of course uh, speculation. I don't know what that happens at the point of death or at the judgment, but I do believe that we're going to have to answer for um, our works on earth as well. Though our sins are paid for, um, I believe that there is going to be some examination as well. So um, I, I do think uh, that's a relevant point that you bring up. So, um, uh, yeah, so I, there's another one here. Uh, Jose Martinez says, I've asked my dad to try to account for morality, the meaning of life, etc. Instead of trying to give an account, he just says, well, that's just how the world is. What are your thoughts? Interesting you bring that up because we're going to get to that later in this video because um, that is, so I'll jump the gun a little bit here. So we have a worldview analysis going on, right? That we're not saying is Christianity true? We're saying which worldview, Christianity or atheism, makes the best sense of what we have. And if you have a worldview, atheism, that says there is no justice, ultimately, um, Adolf Hitler could assassinate himself or be killed or whatever and die without paying the price for the things that he did with six million Jews. Or if you have um, 
a sweet little old lady who just never accepted Christ and dies, but she never did anything from a human perspective that's all that wrong. Both she and Adolf Hitler died, and they died the same, and that's the end. If atheism is true, again, using the word atheism as this atheist uses it, if atheism is true, then um, that's it. There's no justice, or at least there's a deficit of justice between those two. But if Christianity is true, no, there is justice. There is going to be justice. That is an important thing that needs to be mentioned and drawn out. Um, morality. You said morality and meaning. We have a very strong sense of morality such that atheists do all kinds of acrobatics to find a way to affirm some form of objective morality by saying something like, if you go the, the, you know, the, the Sam Harris sort of way, you, 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 you subjectively choose something like well-being, and then you build an objective way of getting to that subjectively chosen thing, and so we've got objective morality. Sorry, no, that doesn't work. Um, or you've got people like scholar fiction who just say, nope, it's subjective, and that's the way it is, and they bite the bullet, but they kind of know when they say that how it sounds to everybody else, Right. Um, which one of those two? So we've got this strong sense. We all agree that we have this extremely strong sense of morality driving us to the point of finding it odd to say that torturing children for the fun of it isn't objectively wrong. So even if you're an atheist and you have to say it's subjective, it hurts to say that, right? Because it seems so strongly that's the case. What makes the best sense of that seemingness? Atheism that says we don't have an answer. It's just the way it is. Or Christianity that says, oh, no, that's because that's real. That's why you sense that so strongly. Well, it's an intuitive argument, uh, but it's an intuitive argument that is universal. And I think um, in on that point or on the point of justice, uh, Christianity answers that better than the atheist um the atheist uh, explanation. All right. So uh, so what what did we what did we just see? So so what he wants to say here is he wants to say, look, um, the, there are a lot of books on the evidential sorts of things. Um, there, there are all these, there are all these sorts of apologetics books and on the atheist side, there are all these books pointing at evidence and we're going to get to more of that. But he said, I found that there was this spot missing in the literature and that is the emotional side of things. That emotional, uh, connection to God is why most of the people that he knows ultimately became believers. Uh, Yeah. You know, I find it odd when atheists often will say things like, Braxton, look, uh, Pete, you didn't become a Christian because of the evidence, did you? No, at least not the kind of evidence you're talking about. I think that evidence is there, but that's not why I became a Christian. Well, don't you think most people become Christians because of emotional reasons? Um, or it fills some need, like they, they have that father figure they want, or they marry someone and, and then they take on that. Yeah, that's probably how most of it happens. Big deal. Uh, the question is, is it true? And yes, on evidential grounds, we can show that it's true. The point I want to make here is that coming to it for emotional reasons is perfectly acceptable. You know why that's perfectly acceptable? Because we're not talking about some cold clinical thing. We're talking about a person, a relationship. This is the same point I make when uh, Dan Barker says that scientists don't go into a room and say, we believe in the Higgs boson. We, we know the Higgs boson is real, but Christians do say, we believe in you, God. We, we love you, God. We put our trust in you, God. Um, uh, doesn't that show that Christians are trying to drum up the belief? No, it shows that the Higgs boson isn't a person. And so you don't treat it like a person, but you do treat God as a person. Because, and, and that's how you talk to persons. That's how you talk to a spouse. You say, I believe in you. I love you. I tr I'm putting my trust in you. That's how persons are treated. And in a similar way, when we're talking about um, emotional things, there are 
uh, persons that I will come to know purely for factual reasons. Say I want to bring on a new professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. We're going to look at their credentials. We're going to look at what they've done. We're going to look at what they know. We're going to look at all those things. And of course, for us as Christians, there's going to be prayer involved in that and meeting them and all those things. But it's somewhat done on an, on an evidential, factual basis. On the other hand, if we're the deepest relationships that we have in our lives, we hold those on the basis of mostly emotional reasons. So, for instance, um, when you fall in love with someone, romantic love. Now, um, in some countries and at some times in history, that was also done on um, evidential, factual grounds. But uh, for the most part in the modern West, we make those decisions based on emotions. As I've said before, when I looked over at my wife um, to be my wife to be when I was in college and saw her in the student center, um, I, uh, I looked over at her and I thought she's hot. I want to go talk to her. And I started falling in love with her for emotional reasons. Now, there may be factual things that come up that you learn that make that union more um more of an obviously good one or bad one. But in general, all things being equal, it's emotional. In, in, and in that way, one can know what romantic love is and know the power of romantic love without understanding anything about serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin levels. Conversely, you can know everything there is to know about oxytocin and not understand or grasp the power of romantic love. What I'm saying there is coming to believe in love because you understand serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin levels is perfectly legitimate, but coming to understand love because you've experienced it and there's an emotional thing going on there is likewise a legitimate reason to come to faith. And you won't hear many apologists talk this way, but I'm calling it like it is. And I hope that that is important and helpful to you all as well. Um, uh, there's someone who here who said something uh, let's see, uh, Joseph Shipley. Let's find that comment. He says, um, it's interesting that emotional appeal is regularly brought up to criticize someone arriving at Christianity, but it's assumed one arrives at atheism only for intellectual reasons. Boy, have you gotten it? Uh, I mean, that, that is what's coming up next. And I think that's important, but before we get there, let me say this. I mentioned this a lot lately because it just, I thought it was so perfect for this. In the recent discussion between Mike Lacona and uh, Laura Robinson, he brought out that people uh, come to faith for different reasons. They have different, we could say, um, faith uh, languages, like we would say that we have um, love languages. You, you may have heard about the book, The Five Love Languages, where we have um, the, the, some people feel loved when they receive acts of service, like doing the dishes. Um, some people might feel loved because of physical touch. Some, it's words of affirmation. Um, and so people experience, they feel love or they experience love in different ways. And likewise, I think this is great because some people um, connect to God and, and, and are, are made sure of God in, because of these more personal um, reasons, because we're talking about a personal relationship here. That is not illegitimate when you're talking about a personal relationship. Some people, it's more the evidential stuff. I think there's always some evidential stuff in the emotional uh, draw, and I think there's always some emotional in the evidential draw, but it's certainly there, and I think that that's um, an important thing to think through. Now, I, I want to bring it now back to what Joseph Shipley was, was just talking about, because that's in the next clip, so let's go ahead and run over there real quickly. On the whole, when, when, um, when 
new atheists talk about religion, um, they talk in a kind of almost schizophrenic way. No, I don't mean that in a proper mental health sense of the word. I just mean in a strongly divided way, as if half the time um, there was nothing in the world but 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 evidence. I've got a friend who calls some of them the evidence Daleks. They say, evidence, evidence, where is your evidence? Um, um, but then that dealt with, and it having been, to their satisfaction, proved that religion doesn't meet the, the standards of evidence, there's then uh, a huge billowing kind of emotional argument as well, and very rarely any self-exploration about where the emotions come from. Mm. Oh, this is so powerful. Yes. Most much uh, a lot of the time with YouTube atheism or Internet atheism, what you get is this presentation of the individual as though they are the kind of person that can rise above all of the emotions and view this thing from a completely objective stance, which, of course, is impossible for anyone to do. But that's the presentation. That's that's how it is. Um, and I, oh, I'm so tempted right now to give examples, but, um, but yeah, that totally happens. And so I, I, I think it's great that he says, but then once they give you the reasons why they think that it's proven that, that Christianity shouldn't meet a standard of evidence or something like that. And then all of a sudden you get all the emotional stuff vomited out onto you. And you do, you get that from the atheists that once they get through with all the evidential stuff, they'll give you all this emotional ire that's there. If you want to see a good example of this, here's what you do. Go and, and it may be happening with you and you don't even realize it. And it also may be that it's not happening with you as an atheist. And as I always say on the show, what do I say? If the shoe don't fit, don't wear it. But I'm not talking to you if that's not you. But um, if you want to see this in Technicolor, go to YouTube and search for deconversion stories. And when you search for decon deconversion stories, don't look at the channels that have 50,000 subscribers. Look at the channels that have between 100 and 2,000 subscribers and look at those deconversion stories. You know what you're going to find more often than not? And I know this because I, I was actually counting because I was going to do a video on this at one point and I never did. But what you find is that one of the first things you'll hear is it was because of purity culture, the, 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 you know, the negative taste that put in their mouth, the purity culture, or it was because of the Christian view on homosexuality, or it was because of the um, so, way somebody treated me in the church, or one of these kind of things. And then, and, and hey, some atheists will say, right, that may be the thing that prompted the investigation to then look at the evidence. And so they did get to the evidence. Okay, fair enough. However, understand that if it was because of one of those things initially, then those things bias you for the evidential investigation. So all that stuff that certain YouTubers want to say is Christians just looking for evidence to back up what they already believe, that same thing can happen just as much on atheism if you go to the evidence already with a, a, a bias um, in that direction. That, that can happen with anyone. Um, so, so it, it taints it in, in that way. And, and that, that is an important piece. And you get all this emotional stuff about all these things in the church. Now you can say, yeah, but that's an important thing to feel emotional about is the way that the church views homosexuals. Well, first of all, I'm afraid I've heard more often than not from unbelievers, a mischaracterization of how the church views homosexuals. And I've got views on that in the channel. 
Um, we love them. We love homosexual people. We love people that are experiencing same-sex attraction. We love people that are engaged in same-sex behavior. I've got uh, videos on this channel about that. But if you want to feel like that's awful, and I'm sorry, I don't pull any punches on this issue. This is the one issue you're about to hear me get real Jonathan Pritchett about. That's my co-host who is less couth than I am about some of these things. Hi, if you're in the chat, Jonathan. But when it comes to the issue of abortion, far and away, um, atheists support abortion. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> if this was recorded, I would edit out my sneezes. But far and away, atheists support the, uh, abortion. And if if you and, and listen, there is no philosophically sensible or scientifically reasonable grounds for viewing abortion the way that people do. Don't go with me to the fringe cases about save the mother's life. I'm with you there. We're talking about the far more vast and common reasons that people get abortions. And if you're supporting that, don't come to me talking about bigotry and all these kind of things that happen with the way that you wrongly mischaracterize how the church views of hom views homosexuality in some cases. I don't pull any punches about that. And though there is this move to paint Christians as these bigoted, um, you know, whatever you want to say, uh, sorry, that has that rings absolutely hollow to me so long as we are murdering the unborn and far and away. Are there pro-life atheists? Yes, there are. And they have my respect for that. So um, sorry. Yeah, I, I get a little I come a little unglued on that issue, but I think it's with a righteous indignation and I don't care how that phrase strikes you. OK, put Pritchett back in the closet now. <laughs> <laughs> Back to my normal, wonderful, loving, friendly, lovable little fuzzball self. Um, so uh, what are we talking about here? I don't know. I've gone off script. And oh, atheists are emotional too. Um, it's this dressing it up in all, I'm looking at only intellectual evidential reasons. Sorry, no, I, I, don't, I don't buy it. And um, that, that is not how anyone operates. Everyone has bias. You say, yeah, but you Christians have bias too. That's right. Everyone has bias. What you want to do is try to limit your bias and be honest about it. But you can't limit your bias until you're honest about it. And Inspiring Philosophy has a great video from just uh, about a month ago where he talks about the fact that atheists um, may have more of a propensity to ignore their bias and have a biased blind spot than other people do if you think that people who have, uh, have an IRIQ higher IQ who are atheists, which of course he has a video showing that that also is unlikely to be the case. So anyway, yes, I got a little bit, uh, I got a little bit Hunter prime there, but you'll have to, I, no, don't forgive me. I'm not asking, I'm not apologizing for it. This is a serious issue. Um, all right, let's go to the next clip. I think this is, um, I think this is going to be good. The, the, are you ready? This is, this is good. Just at the very beginning, at the outset, um, your, your opening chapter is sort of your opening uh, salvo at the new atheist movement, in a way. Uh, you particularly um, reserve your ire for the atheist bus campaign. This was a few years ago when the um, buses around London had this slogan on the, the side um, sponsored by the British Humanist Association. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And you talk about, well, what does that hold out to the prostitute, the drug addict that it passes by? And you write... What it means, if it's true, is that anyone who isn't enjoying themselves is entirely on their own. And later on, it amounts to a denial of hope or consolation. 
Um, what, what's particularly got you so riled about that particular example of, of the new atheism? Because of the the assumption in it that religion has precisely one piece of emotional content and it's fear, um, and that the only thing that the, the thought of the existence of God could possibly hold out to anybody is 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 a threat. Um, one of the amazing things about the new atheist case is how I think absurdly time lagged it is. They are still crusading against hell. And I know that if you are somebody who's got no connection with church and you see those little posters threatening you with undying fire and things put up unhelpfully by the biblical text society, then you might think you might think that Christians are still primarily in the hell business, but you know we're not really. And I don't know anybody for whom it figures very largely in their in in their religious understanding. So to think of religion as if the main and only thing it did was to was to kind of menace you with devils with with pitchforks seems to me to make uh, an irritatingly flat assumption about about how human beings work, as if as if it was a simple negative you remove it everybody bounds out into into lovely happiness it, of, of a kind that strikes me as being very like the 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 flatness of 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 commercials of the way that adverts show us punching the air and and waltzing in slow motion towards the future if we have if we have brand x of whatever it is so it, so it's this kind of simplistic idea that it, reject religion and all the, the evils yeah. and woes will will be gone. Quite, we'll which we'll is, live in this utopia that John Lennon describes in Imagine. Which is questionable as history, questionable as psychology, very questionable in terms of in terms of human experience. OK, now I'm going to go out of order a little bit with this because there is actually a response from the atheist. We haven't heard from the atheist yet. That's because. Um, really the first half of this conversation was largely the Christian talking, um, but, but toward the back end, we'll get more, but, but I want to jump ahead a little bit to the, uh, comment on the atheist bus campaign. For those that don't know those famous red double-decker buses in London, England, um, there were signs on them, I think rallied by Richard Dawkins organization, but I could be wrong about that. Don't hold me to that. That said, uh, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. And, um, and let's hear what, uh, Let's hear what the atheist here, the guy that wrote the Golden Compass, let's see what he has uh, to say about this. It'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Philip. Uh, as, as an atheist, do, do you kind of see where, where Francis has come from in this book and what he's responding to about, about contemporary atheism? Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with him about the atheist past. I thought that slogan was um, demeaning and stupid beyond words, and I wish I'd had some say in it because I'd have said, for God... For God's sake, don't do it. <laughs> say something else, for goodness sake. Mm. It's an absurd thing to say. Likewise with that ridiculous and uh, sickly song of John Lennon's, which I loathe whenever it comes <laughs> on the radio. Did we just have an atheist spokesperson say that John Lennon's Imagine was ridiculous and he turns it off when it comes on the radio? Wow. Um, that might be something to, uh, to, you know, write that down as a quote that you can use sometime. But, um, but yeah, so I like what the Christian says about this is that, so the only reason that statement, there's probably no God, so stop worrying about it and enjoy your life. The only way that has any teeth is if you imagine God kind of like that large winged gargoyle looking figure from Fanta Disney's Fantasia standing up over a volcano. That's the only way. And I realize that for some of you atheists, and I know your brain goes exactly to this because you've heard so much of it 
from others on the, you go to these Old Testament passages that largely are explained wrongly and don't take into account the A&E context. Um, I've got videos on all of that, the slavery issue, the uh, treatment of women, uh, the war passages that all, um, and, and I'm convinced that at least when you come to those war passages and things like that, if you will, if you understand those rightly, you'll come out saying God would not have been a good God if that weren't the way it went. But I have videos on that and, uh, and you can explore those. I'm not going to repeat all that information right here. Um, but, and you, you have heard about hell, right? That's why you would feel that way. And we're going to look at that now. The thing is, um, yeah, hell is not the totality of the Christian message. And I, and I actually think, um, that, this thing about hell, uh, he, he's right that if you just look at the billboards and the ads and things like that, you would come away with the understanding that all of Christianity, it's just about hell. It's just about getting your fire insurance. It's just about not going to hell. Um, but that is not all of Christianity. I, I, listen, if everyone on planet Earth was suddenly a Christian and no one was going to hell, I don't think we should stop the missions endeavors. I don't think we should stop the evangelistic preaching and the preaching on the street corner and all those kind of things. Why? Because even if someone's not going to hell, they need to know what the king wants from his subjects. They need to know how to serve in the kingdom. They need to know how to deepen their relationship with this loving God that we have. It's so much, it's, it, there's so much more to it than just hell. Secondly, increasingly I'm running into fewer and fewer Christians who understand hell is this place of a literal fire um, where your face is melting off for billions of years and then you're just getting started. Uh, and even among those who, who, and so for those that don't hold that view, they still might hold what is called the traditional view or eternal conscious suffering, but not in, in this literal fire sort of way. They think of that as, um, they think of that as, uh, uh, imagery. And, and of course there is fire is imagery for judgment It's judgment language in the Bible. And in, uh, and Jesus in Mark chapter nine is pointing back to judgment language in the old Testament about the smoke and the fire of Jerusalem and all that. Um, so th there's a lot going on with that hell conversation that people just ignore and, and they take the most, this is why atheists are sometimes thought of as fundamentalist atheists is because they'll take Many of them will take the worst possible expression of a doctrine and, that, and, and then take that and make it like that is Christianity and then reject it. Well, that's what we call, and it wouldn't exactly be a straw man so long as some people do hold that. We need a new term for it. It's like um, largely a straw man or something um, of that sort. Now, let's not go too far the other way. Hell is a part of this. And you do get saved from something. You get saved from your sin and you get saved from the penalty of your sin. So uh, I, I realize that even among Christian apologists, there are a large number of them who seem to skirt this issue. And I don't care if every apologist on the internet decides they're not going to talk about it. And that's not every apologist. You're still going to find me saying, yeah, you need Jesus. And there's a whole lot of really good reasons you need Jesus. But one of them is so you don't go to hell, so that you don't experience condemnation. And if you're out there and you think, well, that just, I can't believe you're fear-mongering. You're trying to scare me into heaven. You're darn right, I think, that it's an important thing to consider the consequences of decisions that you make about your worldview. And no one would get upset with me about that if I was encouraging people to stop smoking. But they do get upset with me about it when it comes to worldview issues. Why? Well, it's only because they don't believe that it's true. Or maybe they don't want it to be true. 
But deciding what you believe based on what you want uh, to be true uh, it doesn't work. I, I have had people ask me, why would you want to believe in a place like hell? Why would you want to believe in a concept like hell or judgment or condemnation? Hey, I don't decide what I believe based on what I would like to be true. I would like it to be true that cancer didn't exist. I would like it to be true that lightsabers were possible. But you know what? Cancer does exist and lightsabers seem to be impossible. That's the dice we've been dealt. That's the world that we live in. And so we should decide what's true based on what happens to be true. So anyway, um, I'll move off of that now. But, but I do think he's right to point out it's not all about that. And this, and this notion, and I like what he said there too about on the bus. If that's fine, if you're sort of this leftist, um, you know, uh, hipster white person, what, whatever he has in his mind with that, um, or something. But if you're, uh, if, if you actually are experiencing, uh, pain, suffering, those sorts of things, and, and you don't have any hope, then in such a situation, then yeah, this is, you're telling me that one of the reasons I had for hope that one day there would be justice, that one day there would be a way out is suddenly gone. And that is a frightening, frightening concept. Um, and so again, let's, let's look at the worldview analysis. What matches better? What matches the evidence better? What best explains this thing that there is a God, that Christianity is true or that, um, atheism is true. I think Christianity makes better sense of that. All right, let's move on to the next thing. And let's, uh, oh, uh, let's see, I, I skipped one. Um, is it true though? Remember how I said at the beginning of this thing that, um, that um, uh, every worldview does have answers to these questions, right? Every worldview does have answers to these questions. It's just which one has the better answers. We're going to get a little bit of that here as we listen to the Christian talk. You, you sort of you aren't trying to, as I mentioned, make this case sort of logically for God, but you're saying, well, if you look at the way our emotions interact with the world, atheism isn't doing it. You're, you're saying there's, there's no, this no, gap. No, no, no. Atheism is doing it partly. Um, the atheist case r rests on a set of dignified and important emotions, as I understand it. And, and my understanding is partly you know, from inside because I used to, to be there. Emotions to do with um human independence and dignity and autonomy and a sense of of what there what there is for people with ourselves and each other in in an empty universe where we are the sources of all of our own meanings and yeah there's, there's stuff to respect in there i don't actually think it fits enough of human experience but i can see that it does fit some things in an admirable and impressive way and yeah, so this is this is where you don't want to go too far whenever you're um, presenting the Christian case. They do try to answer the major questions of life, and and they and they and even down into the specifics. Does atheism offer uh, some responses to these emotional struggles? Of course, when you're talking about meaning and purpose, the atheist has an answer. The answer is this old Jean-Paul Sartian sort of idea that we make up um, a meaning for ourselves, right? Um, that we decide our meaning. Now, is that as good of an answer as the Christian answer? No, because you can't, nothing gives itself a purpose. A hammer can't decide to be a hammer. The inventor decided it would be a hammer. And, um, and, and so we have an inventor that decided, there's all kinds of things like that. 
But atheism does look at certain virtues. The virtue of in, this individualism, this autonomy, this dignity, human dignity, th these kind of things. There are virtues at play there. And um, I think uh, Tim Keller, and uh, we should pray for Tim Keller. He's struggling with cancer, I think. But, but Tim Keller puts, puts this so beautifully. When people are out there, say, fighting for the rights of the LGBTQ community, or when they are concerned with humanitarian efforts or things like that. The response to this should not be that they're wrong. No, capitalize on what is good that they're saying, that they're valuing, that they see as a virtue, and then look at that and say, but there's a better explanation. There is a better purpose. There's a better grounding for what you're seeing that is good. What you're seeing that is good here is treating that person as an image bearer of the one true God, because the atheist position doesn't have any grounding for that. We just have people doing what they like. This person likes doing a Holocaust. This person likes building wells for thirsty people in some African country, but they're all just doing what they like. You say, well, no, because well-being. Yes, but remember, while there may be objectively better or worse ways to get to well-being, which you've set as a goal, you have subjectively set that for a goal because there is no objective foundation. So it all just becomes people doing what they want to do. So if you think it's right to stand up for the rights of um, LGBTQ individuals, well, guess what? That stems from a virtue that you recognize that this is a person made in the image of God. But you don't get that on atheism. You get that. That finds its most robust fulfillment in Christianity. And so the story of Christianity makes better sense, both logically and emotionally, when we come to these things. So I, I think this is um, all pretty important uh, for us to see. Uh, we're going to move on now to... Um, oh, and by the way, I want to say about that. If you rip out, if you rip out this um, emotional answer that's given... And you try to go with just this, we're just looking at the evidence and we can have everything that Christianity had, but without its Christ. What you're left with is there's a, there's a great book. Some people have noticed, in fact, the guy, um, the guy who was in that band, Hawk Nelson, we did a couple episodes on him. Sean McDowell's had a discussion, a couple of discussions with him. Uh, Jonathan, John Steingard, I think is his name. Um, he noticed that I have the um, C.S. Lewis space trilogy right there. And that's a fan favorite for people that know, and not everybody knows because it's kind of a deep cut. But um, one of the books in that series, and that series was given to me by Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, and it's my favorite gift that he's ever given me. And uh, the last book in that series is That Hideous Strength. And That Hideous Strength, um, it, it, actually it's my least favorite of the three, but there is at least one great thing in it. And that is that these scientists who are trying to run on naturalism basically have 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 used it. They're trying to create this eternal life kind of situation. And what they're left with is a human head disembodied with cords and, and tubes going into it to sustain its life. And when people see it and, and experience it and it's kind of decaying and there's goo hanging off and all this, the idea is, OK, you you've you've sustained something there, but you have ripped out of it the joy of life. And this is kind of what Christianity, this is what the human experience is left with. You think you can have the morality. You think you can have the meaning. And we're not saying you don't have answers. But when you rip out the Christ, if you rip out the God, then you've ripped out the foundation. You've ripped out the, the underlying support for that. And all you're left with is something that's kind of like a, 
a head kind of drooling on itself, sitting on a pedestal in a lab somewhere. And it's just not what the human experience is meant to be. Um, so, um, there you go. Sermon number two. I, I don't know what's happening to me today. I'm getting all fired up. I hope that it's not running you away. Actually, the crowd is growing, so I'm happy to see. I'm happy to see that. All right, let's move on to the next thing, and let's look at this idea of sin. And does this does the Christian story capture sin in a more robust way than the atheist story? One of the first chapters is essentially about sin. Uh, now, mm. that's a, a word which will immediately ring warning bells for many people, many atheists, many skeptics. Mm. Now, your sort of um, approach in the book is to try and recast this in terms of not perhaps using that word. In fact, you use uh, an acronym, um, which we H won't say on which the we radio. won't say on air because this is a family friendly show. But um, <laughs> it, it's HPTFU, the yeah. high propensity to mm, things up. up. OK, yeah. now uh, what you're essentially saying is that this is a um, uh, something that everybody recognizes there. It's part mm. of our human nature. Yeah. Christians have a word for it and see it as a an issue in the world which needs to be tackled. Um, and so from that perspective, you're saying, I'm not going to kind of make a sort of um, logical case for this. I'm just saying we all seem to be aware of this this issue. Yes, although we, we name it in different ways. And I think mm. that the Christian, this is going to sound perverse, since I didn't use the Christian name for it in order to, to get people to see it separate from the way that sin is now strongly associated with lingerie and chocolate. Um, <laughs> but I think the Christian name for it is, is important because it comes with a, with a specific, and I think quite kindly understanding of, of what we ought to be pessimistic about ourselves. I think that, that messing up, as we shall call it, um, is, is, is built in. And I do think that there are, if I can, if I can head over here towards, towards His Dark Materials for a minute. His Dark Materials makes a very powerful um, case for, for the value of experience and the, the kind of the limitations of, of innocence. It's a part of what makes it wonderful as a children's book is that it is, it is saying that actually growing up out of childhood is profoundly exciting. Um, it's not a process of loss. And the book is, is essentially arguing um, it's a mistake to see it as starting clean and 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 getting dirty there's lots of kind of wonderful stuff from william blake going on just under the skin of, of his dark materials there which um gives gives experience a, a tremendously exciting power but i think there's something missing in there there's an extent to which to which we ought to be more pessimistic than that about about experience that what we grow up into is is the full range of human possibilities, including the destructive ones, and and that, um, and that what we ought to see when we look at ourselves is a a destructiveness, um, which is just as much a part of experience as 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 all the good things, um, and something that we can't disavow without telling ourselves comforting lies about ourselves. Hmm. What what did you make of uh, Francis's definition of sin, Philip? I think it's a very good one, and I think it does um, uh, match very closely our experience of uh, trying to get things right and failing. It's a very good. Um, it's a very good acronym. I would... Yeah. So, um, in case you drifted off there for a second, he instead of using the word sin in his book, used 
an acronym HPTFU, <laughs> which stands for high propensity to F things up, right? Sorry that we try to keep this a family show too. But the, here's why I think there's value in that, though I wouldn't have used that ac acronym exactly, is because I so often encounter atheists who say that this idea of sin is uh, the horrible thing because this very idea that we are sinful and blah, 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 blah. Um, okay. Do you believe we have a high propensity to mess things up? Oh, you do. Okay. You do. Well, then that's what we're talking about. We call it sin. You call it a high propensity to mess things up. And so this, this notion that it's horrible that, um, that this sin idea is there or that we, um, have these intrinsic proclivities toward wickedness. Okay. Do you live in the world? Do have you experienced your own life and seen what you've been capable of? The answer is, so atheism doesn't have an answer. A atheism's answer is, yes, there are things that I have done that I don't like that I did and that other people don't like that I did. It's not that it's objectively immoral. We call it immoral. Christianity has an answer to that. Uh, you know why you feel bad about that? Because that's immoral. That's wrong. It's objectively wrong. Which worldview has the better answer to that? Which worldview matches what we intuitively know about the nature of reality? Um, yeah, the Christian worldview does. It's as simple as that. Um, and I love how he says we look at ourselves and see a destructiveness that we can't disavow without telling ourselves comforting lies. Can you think of a few comforting lies that are being told regularly in our cultural narrative today worldwide? I can. Um, doesn't take much to think about that. So comforting lives, lies. Um, all right, uh, let's go. And so he agrees about this. Let's move on to the atheist agrees. By the way, do you notice a stark difference between this, this atheist and what we see from atheism on the internet so often? Here's an atheist that's, that's, that's saying, yeah, I mean, there is value in the Christian story. I see that. I sympathize with that. Yeah, I, I see that this idea of sin seems to be a real concept, though I don't call it sin. Um, yeah, I, I think those atheist bus signs are terrible. I mean, this, this is much more, uh, and he's like, and I can't stand these atheists that it's all about the evidence. What's your evidence? You don't have any evidence. You know, there's a big difference between, um, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive, but the academically minded atheist and the bumper sticker atheist. And I, I just wish, I just hope that if you're an atheist in this audience, that you try to be more like this academically-minded atheist than the Hitchens-esque bumper sticker chest-thumping sort of atheist that we see out there so often. All right, um, we're going we're gonna to move on to um, the next thing. We're getting through this, okay? We're getting through this. Uh, let's see. Here we go. And for you, somehow in this story of Christ taking on our HPTFU mm. and, and bearing it himself— and allowing us to to escape its sort of consequences and, and whatever. This for you, again, is borne out with the way you emotionally engage with that story and with, with sin and, and everything else. It, it makes sense in that context. You're not kind of, again, laying out a kind of apologetic sort of along the lines of C.S. Lewis about why Christ was who he said he was, you know, mm. looking at the history of the time. But you're just saying, if you just take it as Christianity presents it, it makes sense for me emotionally. Yes, um, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, I'm arguing for it from scratch in an emotional sense, but not from scratch in a kind of apologetic 
sense. I'm not saying here are the things that support it. Here are your historical arguments about about first century first century Palestine. Not doing not doing that at all. What I'm saying is that. For me, at any rate, the natural next step after you recognise that the that the destructiveness is there built into into human experience is not just to say, well, we'd better be stoical or we'd better be kind to each other. Though both of those are you know good things to do, but that but that there is a human need there which reaches out towards something we cannot provide for ourselves. That for one thing. Um, for one thing, the injustices we do to each other are often of the kind where we really ought not to be seeking forgiveness from the people we've just hurt, because that would that would compound it. That would be even worse. And um, I talk about um, humanity being in a million-sided, multi-generational lawsuit against each other, and that's that's kind of kind of true on a reasonably tragic reading of human history. And God comes in as the thing that breaks the ice flow, as far as I'm concerned, the thing that thing person that has the infinite capacity required to take the weight of what we labor and wobble under ourselves um and offers it as a piece of generosity for the sake of generosity because he is generosity um <clears throat> okay so some things that, that i want to draw out from this so which worldview makes better sense of what we're talking about right now. Here you have this notion of the HPTFU, the sin, right, that we're talking about, or the HPTFU, if you're an atheist, we have this problem. What, 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 what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do? This is a part of what happens. So there is this joy, this, this excitement of s striking out as an adult now and having some experiences for yourself. And there's a journey that, that is a part of the human experience that we all love and that is gratifying and has a depth to it. It's a part of becoming a man or being a woman. But along with that comes destruction. There's a lot of goods there. There's a lot to delight, but there is also destruction. And we know we have this propensity toward destruction. And so what has to happen? We, we, we sense that there is a need to do something about this. And the best we can come up with is to um, apologize, to seek forgiveness from someone else. And, and though we would differ, I think, from our Christian here in this uh, on a little bit, you should seek forgiveness, but you can't understand how it's almost like you're putting another burden further on someone because now you've wronged them, but they've got to now forgive you. It's kind of like it reminds me of when the, the Amish um, community, someone killed one of their girls. And, and so they went, they made food and took it to the man in the Christian, in the, in the, uh, the he wasn't a Christian. They took this to the murderer in the prison and and forgave him you know that was powerful and meaningful because to ask them to forgive this man almost seems like more of a, a more of a problem more of a um i don't know it seems beyond the pale but they did it and uh, it was a beautiful expression of christianity for them to do such a thing but we know ultimately we what does that mean what does that do for us if there is no god to forgive it doesn't mean anything it means we might function a little better in society um but if there is a god that can solve this for us the million lawsuits all fired against each other that he describes if there is a god who can become a person and on behalf of all of the crimes, all of the wrongs of humanity, take the punishment for them. 
as an everlasting person, then we can be acquitted, basically, justified. I take justification in that sense to be somewhat synonymous with acquitted of those crimes. And it's a powerful, powerful con idea. And this is one of the reasons why I often say Christianity seems weird. I get it. The Old Testament sacrificial system, all these kind of things. It seems weird, but it actually makes so much sense. And for the topic that we're considering today, emotionally, it makes a lot of sense. So we're going to move on now. We're, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to move through this more quickly. Let's get on to the next thing about the Trinity coming from our atheist. He was a most remarkable man, a most extraordinary man, one of the great um, geniuses uh, of, of world history, but a man only, mm. I think. Uh, I, I, the, the difficulty for me comes when, when, when the God business comes into it, you know, when, 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 we, when we hear that he is, he is uh, somehow also the creator of everything. I could never, even as a child, even as a pious child, I could never understand how he could be this, how, how three could be one, mm. you know, the Trinity business. Um, there was God the Father, there was God the Son, and there was some sort of mysterious uncle figure um, who just sort of hovered amiably in the background called the Holy Ghost, or as we used to call it, or the Holy Spirit. I couldn't understand why, they, are they different? Are they why? I just couldn't get it, and I still don't get it. <laughs> okay, so we've got a guy here writing a book on the nature of Jesus, and, and by the way, the, the book that they're specifically talking about is not The Golden Compass or the, His Dark Materials. They're talking about how he wrote a book where he, he shows that Jesus is different from Christ. You know, in... in uh, Historical Jesus studies sometimes will talk about the Jesus of history or the Christ of faith. But he he takes it and he says, okay, Jesus was a man and he was a pretty good man, uh, brilliant, high IQ, genius, all those kind of things. And then Christ is what the church has created for the purposes of domination, basically, and hugging authority to themselves, basically, is what it is. And so, and if I've oversimplified that, then forgive me. Um, but I don't think you'll ever see this, but if you do, then, um, then I, I apologize. But I think that's basically the, the, the gist there. Um, and, uh, and so he, he doesn't understand the nature of the Trinity. Why would you write a book about Jesus without having a clear understanding of the Trinity? And I think what's happened is he's decided it can't be understood. But here's the thing. It can't be understood if you are making the common error of contradiction where you're saying the Trinity must be three persons and one person or three gods and one God. But if you understand Orthodox classical Trinitarian language, it's one God, one being, and three persons. Three persons, one being. Now, you say, yeah, but that doesn't help. Of course it does. The way that works is you simply do it like this. Um, in fact, here's what's so amazing. Now, I'm not giving you an analogy for the Trinity. I'm only giving you an example of how you can have two persons who experience one, who are with one being. So in his own book, in uh, The Golden Compass, we have something that is not exactly this, but approaches this, right? Have you read the book? Have you seen the show on HBO? Did you see the movie with Nicole Kidman? In the, in, what we find there is each child, and then for the rest of their life, is joined to um, an animal, basically a um, spirit animal, basically is what it is. It's called a daemon or a demon or something like that. And um, so it's just such that they, they experience life together and they are separate persons 
separate personalities, but they, they sometimes one will feel what the other feels that they are connected in some deeper way. And that is not exactly it, but they, it's almost like two persons sharing one being more directly still, though, still not a, a, a direct analogy to the Trinity is what, um, uh, Chris date said when he was on our show a few episodes back, he said, take back to the future. You've got Biff Tannen, the villain in the 1950s as a younger man and Biff Tannen, uh, as an older man in the distant future of 2015. And he travels back to the 1950s and has a conversation with himself. So you've got old Biff Tannen and young Biff Tannen sitting in a car talking to each other, separate persons having their own conscious experience, but one being Biff Tannen. So th these are fictional examples, obviously, but they serve as thought experiments to show that there, it's, not, it's not impossible, right? It's not, you can figure this out. It's not difficult to imagine one being three persons. Um, yeah, so, okay, so here we've got Johnny says, um, if three can't be one, then how can I talk to myself? <laughs> Who or what am I talking to? So, yeah, the, you, you are a person talking to that same person. That's what's happening. It's not as though you're talking and someone else with a different conscious experience is experiencing those things. But it's important to understand three persons, one being. Now, Jesus in the garden talking to the Father is one person talking to another person, but they both share the being, God. So you say, but that just sounds like, that, that still doesn't make any sense. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's strange, but it, it's not that it doesn't make sense, if we mean by that, that it has some contradiction. So you say, says, but time travel is impossible. Right. Uh, well, I don't know that it's impossible, but as a person who affirms the A theory of time, I suspect that it's impossible. Nevertheless, um, again, these are fictional stories anyway, but they serve as thought experiments where we can imagine a situation where you would have more than one person who shares a being. So um, interesting. But, but why you would write a book about this until you understand uh, the, I mean, you, you may not even buy it, or you might still think it's odd, but you would at least understand what the church says about the Trinity. Now we move on to something else of literary interest here, and we are moving through this, that has to do with Dostoevsky's The Grand Inquisitor. Um, I am constantly impressed by how kind of Dostoevskyan your sense of the tragedy here is. It, it, it reminds me a lot of the conversation that Jesus has with the Grand Inquisitor in in the Brothers Karamazov. Um, so in, in the Brothers Karamazov, you have two brothers. It's largely orbiting um, three brothers in the Brothers Karamazov. But you have two brothers who are having a discussion, and one is kind of the atheistic type, and the other one is like a devoted Christian who hangs out all the time with the priests and everything. Um, and, uh, and, and they're having a conversation they do love each other. They're having this conversation. And the the atheistic sort of a figure who Dostoevsky commonly gives the the greatest case, right? The strongest case in his books, the the intellectual. I'm right now in the middle of reading um, uh, Crime and Punishment and loving it. Uh, but so so uh, but in, in, in the Brothers Karamazov. So you have this conversation with Ivan and um, there is this poem given of the grand inquisitor and what happens is basically jesus comes back and the church rejects him jesus starts doing these miracles and the grand inquisitor 
sits Jesus down and says, look, you can't, you can't be doing this because you're messing everything up. We've got people under control or more so. And see, the problem was you've given people free will. <laughs> That's the problem. You shouldn't have given people free will. When you give people free will, they're going to end up not believing. And he goes back to the temptations of Christ in the wilderness in the one case where, um, where uh, Jesus doesn't choose the bread, um, uh, doesn't turn the stones into bread. Oh, but see, but, but you don't understand, Jesus. Every man would do that, or um, he should, Jesus should have turned the stones into bread, or Jesus should have cast himself off the top of the, the pinnacle of the temple, because at least then everybody would obviously see that he was God and it would be easier to believe. And as you go through, you find that the problem is you gave people th free will, and now a lot of them won't believe. You shouldn't have given them free will. So he makes this case that as you're reading it, um, kind of seems compelling, uh, but the, the reality is the answer that Jesus gives after this great case has come is Jesus leans in and kisses the Grand Inquisitor. Simple as that. Just that's the answer. You say, well, what's the answer? That's the answer. That's the answer. Um, we could speculate about that. I might offer, well, because love is the answer and you don't get love without freedom of the will. Others might give a different answer. Who knows what Dostoevsky had specifically in mind. But as the poem ends, and Ivan has now presented this as his case to his brother, his brother responds by leaning in and kissing him and walking out. Just powerful, powerful, um, powerful sort of a thing there. But it is interesting that what we see here from uh, our atheist figure, uh, Philip Pullman is very much a Dostoevsky sort of a situation, a case. He's making Ivan's case. He's saying, no, 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 Jesus was great. The, uh, the, well, actually, it's the reverse, but Jesus is great. But the church, the, Christ, the Christ figure was created by the church and the church has done this horribly wrong. And that brings us to the next point of the discussion as we hone in on the end here. What about the church? Because the church seems to contradict at every point. Um, what Jesus said, not what Christ said, but what Jesus said. Um, Jesus said, "Give all your property away." The church doesn't. The church. Jesus said, "Turn your, you know, turn your head. Uh, if, you, if you're struck, let him strike you seventy times." What about the Crusades and so on? Hmm. Uh, it's it's the, the church seems to me utterly wrong, utterly un-Jesus-like. It may be Christian, but it's un-Jesus-like. It isn't only utterly wrong, though, um, because as well as the Crusades, there's there's St. Francis. Um, as well, and for every for every dark thing the church has done institutionally, every grievous breach of um, of um, of Christ's teaching, there are there are inevitably humanly failing attempts to carry it out, but nevertheless real solid attempts there. Yeah, so what's your point? Your point is that the church has done things wrong. The church has at times been corrupt and engaged in evil. Now, here, here's the question. Which worldview answers that better? Does the atheistic worldview or the Christian worldview answer that better? Well, the atheist worldview has an answer. The answer is uh, people engage in, you know, wicked things, and we see it in the church. We would expect it just like in other organizations. Okay, but Christianity has an answer for that too. You do remember that the New Testament gives us that the religious leaders at heart weren't what they ought to be, right? The, the, the church anticipates this. And even in the New Testament, we find 
examples where people were creeping into the church who were corrupt and had poor motives, bad theology, and things like that. Christianity expects this. This is not something that is unexpected. Um, so anyway, uh, I think I think this is um, this is important to uh, point out that Christianity has an answer to this. It's not like this counts against the truth of Christianity. It doesn't count in favor of atheism. It doesn't count in favor of Christianity. Really, it's just a fact that we both have answers for, and Christianity predicts this. So um, if that's supposed to be something that counts against Christianity, it doesn't count, nor does, um, nor does this. The church as a community of, um, of believers, uh, uh, like-minded, kindly believers, I fully accept and I fully appreciate and admire. And that's the church which I, I like very much. The problem is what always happens when you get any kind of organization at all, it gets mixed up with political power, whether mm. it's with a small P or a large P. And that's when it goes wrong. Is it? Yeah, when you have any organization, remember, we've seen this. Oh, am I tempted to name names of organizations? But there are atheist um, organizations that just over the past year, year and a half, have just about imploded because of this corruption from within. Are you kidding me? So, yeah, it happens in all organizations. So, yeah, but the church should be different because God's you know over the church and all that sort of thing. What, what does Christian theology say about the people leading the church? That they're humans, right? That they have a nature and an environment inclined towards sin, just like everyone else. Christianity predicts this, suspects this. So um, I think it's important to see that, that we don't, we're not shocked by this. Um, what does an atheist like Philip Pullman have to say about religious experience? I often feel, Philip, that that when a, an atheist hears of religious experience, they they will often say, "Well, I I have what." you might describe as a religious experience but mine comes in a sense of awe at the universe or at the wonder of science even and that sort of thing um and uh, i mean how how do you respond to this very ultimately emotional engagement with this subject when people claim to have experienced something beyond just the natural world uh, with complete sympathy and a certain amount of understanding <clears throat> i was very struck with the um it's not just biology argument because it's one I've, I've, I've put forward myself a number of times to say that it's we, 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 the, the argument that the, that the furious atheists use is that X is merely Y or simply Y or only Y or nothing but Y that's the sort of form the sentence takes you know love is nothing more than the movement of molecules in the brain or something like that well I want to say that love is, is, is the movement of molecules but it's also something else it's also many things you don't just have to go to one layer and, and, and find that the, the full explanation in that. So when Francis describes his uh, uh, feelings about God as being due, due to the same chemicals that, well, yes, he's absolutely right. It is that, but it isn't only that, because we're embodied beings. We live in bodies. We are bodies, and the, uh, our bodies are responsible for, um, I would say, everything of what we feel. But then you see, I am a slightly. Uh, in a slightly unusual position, because I believe that m matter, it, the, the, the real division here is between um, those who believe in matter and spirit and those who believe in only matter, I think. Now, I believe in only matter, but the, the, the difference between me and the, the, the pure matter boys is that I believe that matter is conscious. I'm a...
I think that's hilarious. The difference between me and the pure matter boys. A panpsychist in, in that respect. Um, and that puts me in a very odd position, I know, but that's, that's, where I'm, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, so I love this because he says, it's, it's like he's saying that the, the atheism, that the new atheism, which now I think we could say the internet-style atheism, is too reductive. Yeah, of course. Go back to the love analogy. In fact, they bring it up here. Love is just oxytocin or love is oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, and these chemical reactions that happen in, in the physical body. Yes, that's part of it. But it's not merely that. Are you kidding? It's so much more than that. And if you reduce it down to just that, you have to live in denial of the power of the concept itself. It's not just that. It's more than that. Now, how does this atheist get to it's more than that? Panpsychism. Panpsychism is, the no Panpsychism is the notion that because of the hard problem of consciousness, we don't know how it is that a physical structure could suddenly become self-aware. You know, um, how, how is at what point would you put enough dominoes together that all of a sudden you have now something that's conscious, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a physical matter becoming conscious electrons bouncing around becoming con it doesn't seem to make sense so panpsychism is the idea that there is a, an element of consciousness in everything down to the smallest particles um, not that they're self-aware thinking about things but then when you get enough of them together the consciousness grows so you get something like what we have here uh, what's the evidence for that there isn't any it's an it's it's an attempt to try and explain something that on naturalism cannot be explained the christian answer here in the worldview analysis wins um, you sense that there is another substance because there's another substance. You sense that you are more than your physical body because you are more than your physical body. That intuition matches reality. So are we doing apologetics here? Yes. We're not just talking about the emotional sense that is made from Christianity. We're also talking about the cumulative case that strikes strongly in favor of Christianity and against naturalist atheistic naturalism. So an important thing, I think, to draw out there. Um, and even the atheist agrees it's not merely serotonin and oxytocin. And the Christian takes, in our last clip of the day, the Christian takes that concept and runs with it. Yes, I, I, I think I, I would absolutely agree that love is, is molecules in the brain, but it's not only that. I would want to add to that that organized religion is social glue, corruptible institution, all of that. But it's not only that. It's not just these things. The church has been corrupt, but it's not just corrupt. Um, you know, love is oxytocin, but it's not just oxytocin. And this is where we see that, as I said at the top, it's not as though atheism or Hinduism. I, I notice we may have a Hindu in the crowd or Islam or Buddhism or whatever else. It's not that they don't have answers to these questions. They do have answers. They have answers. But which worldview's answers make the best sense of the nature of reality? And we do abductive reasoning there. And, um, of course, in that cumulative case, I don't just include these things we've been discussing today that are talking surrounding the emotional questions. I also throw in um, the story of Jesus. If Jesus, if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, and that's a historical event that God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating his message of the exclusivity of Christianity, then all other religions that are non-Christian can't be true. It would be a contradiction. And so I would include that. I would include the rapid expansion of the early church. I would include um, consciousness. I would include free will. I would include 
Um, uh, all of these in a cumulative case, uh, the origins question, the cosmology, all of those kinds of things uh, come together in a cumulative case for the truth of the Christian message. And so whoever you are out there today, I would invite you to consider this. And I would invite you to say, am I going to have this glib certainty about uh, all of these matters as an atheist or as a Hindu or as a Muslim or whatever else? Or am I going to look at this carefully and ask the question, which worldview makes the best sense out of the nature of reality, despite how I was or was not raised? And I think at the end of the day, Christianity holds holds um, the best answer. It's the best an explanation for the beginning of the universe, the best explanation for the design of the universe, the best explanation for morality, the best explanation for uh, the events surrounding the life and death of Jesus, the best explanation of emotion as well. It, it, the story of Christianity makes sense emotionally. And I hope that you take that away from this today. Listen, I've enjoyed talking with you. I don't see a lot of questions directed at me, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, kind of head out of this. But listen, this has been just an absolute blast today. And I appreciate all of you showing up. Um, I got to start advertising these things a little bit further ahead of time. Um, I did a little bit more today than I typically do. But listen, every one of you that has showed up here today matters and means something to me. I love you. God loves you. This channel exists because we love non-Christians. We love Christians, of course, but we love non-Christians. We believe God loves you. And um, listen, if, if you'd like to reach out to me, I'm open to that. I'm all over social media. And I'd love to talk to you about coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because we do think that there is much on the line. And we do think that it can fill your deepest emotional longings. If you'd like to support what we're doing here, check us out on Patreon. Um, dot com slash trinity radio patreon.com slash trinity radio um, also we would uh, hope that you would remember real quick to subscribe and click the bell on this channel um, please 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 uh, do that for us if you've enjoyed anything today even as an opponent um, we would really really appreciate that listen um, i can't say enough to tell you how much this channel has meant to me and you've made it possible and uh, thank you, Joseph Shipley, for that substantial <laughs> super chat from a fellow Hoosier. I so, so appreciate that. Thank you so, so much, man. Um, also, I want to say, listen, if you want to go deeper with these issues, um, you can, whoops, you can do that um, at trinitysem.edu, trinitysem.edu. You can become a student and uh, earn credit toward a college degree in these issues. And then if you want to go further, you can go further with us or you can go to the regionally accredited Calvary University who accepts our transfer. And so we would love, love to find out that you have done that. And so thank you all so, so much for a great, fun stream. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Thank you so much, Slam RN. Thank you so, so much. Uh, you're a Hoosier too. I, I must have forgotten that. We got to get together sometime. Thank you so, so much for that super chat. Thank you, Isaiah Braxton. Thank you, Eddie.
Vasquez, thank you for being here. Super Wood Putty, thank you, the programmer. Trinity Radio out.